And uh, before we look into our passage today, uh, we're going to uh, do something that I promised last week, uh, which is have a look through some of the questions that have been asked on uh, the blue slips. We'll just let the heroes go out to their uh, group. So um, just a reminder, on the inside of your notice sheet, you'll find uh, a blue slip. And that's an opportunity for you to, uh, if you're new or if you've recently come to us, you can put your details on there, uh, get on the list of things like emails and things like that. But it's also an opportunity to ask questions uh, about the sermon, about um, different things that have been said uh, in the meeting. I've got three questions uh, from our Hebrew series. Uh, so I'm just going to answer uh, these questions before we uh, look into our passage this morning. And then when we start our next series, we're going to be doing the the same again. So the first question uh, was, can God speak now in visions, etc.? How can I know it's God speaking? So I think this is picking up on the first week, um, where we looked at the fact that Jesus was God's final word, and we looked at the fact that now God speaks to us through his Son. I want to say, can God speak to us in visions uh, and all the other things now? Well, yes, he can. Uh, He's God, he can do anything. Uh, But I want to say that actually that passage points us to the fact that this isn't the norm for the time in which we live. God has spoken uh, by his son. Uh, So God has actually spoken in a superior way. That's what we've been seeing all the way through, haven't we? We've actually got something better now than what we had uh, before with God speaking to us through his son. So it's not that God can't do that uh, or doesn't even do that, but it's it's not actually the best way that God can speak to us. God can speak to us better uh, through his son in the Bible. Uh, so we shouldn't expect him to normally speak to us in that way. So he can do that, but the way we should expect him to speak to us is through his word, through the Bible, as it's preached, as it's read, as it's talked about uh, between one another. Uh, so it's really, that's the normal way for our time. And actually it belongs to the Old Testament with the visions and the fleeces and all those different things. And then the second part of the question was, how can we know if it's God speaking. Well, um, the question I want to ask is, is it in line with what else God has revealed? Is it in line with what God has said in the Bible? Uh, so if it's there in the Bible, if it fits with what God has said in the Bible, then I think that points us to the fact that it might uh, might be from God. Uh, if it's out of line with what's in the Bible, then it's definitely not uh, from God, because God doesn't contradict himself. Uh, I sometimes have wondered in the past whether you know, you get your sort of internal monologue and at certain times certain verses or things appear in your mind and you think, that seems to be from God. Well, I want to say, well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Because actually that could be from God. But I'd hope that as I get closer to Jesus, as I grow older, actually my internal monologue should be more holy, should be more godly and will hopefully give me better advice than it used to do when I was a younger Christian. So I feel like almost I don't need to answer that question with, is it definitely God? Well, in one sense, it doesn't matter. If it's good advice, if it's from the word, if it fits with what he said... Praise the Lord, uh, and and go with it. But I'd be careful then of using the language of saying God has spoken to me, uh, because as soon as you do that, you're actually claiming an authority for what you're saying that can be unhelpful. So you know, I, I, God has said this to me. Well, if someone else says, well, no, He hasn't, you know, they're making it not just that they're contradicting you; they're contradicting God. So even even in those circumstances, I'd be careful. Think of Paul. Paul says he's had a vision, or he knows a man who's had a vision of the third heaven, but doesn't speak about it. Uh, actually, because he doesn't want to, to boast and, and go into those things. So I'd be careful of using the language of God has spoken to me, um, but that doesn't mean that he can't do. So that's question number one from the blue slips. Question number two, if Jesus is God's final word, what implications does this have 
as we read the Old Testament? It's a good question. Um, I want to say that really the main implication is that we read the Old Testament Christocentrically. Now that's a bit of a long word, but it means really with Christ at the centre. That's why it's Christocentrically. That means when we look at Adam, we should be thinking about the second Adam, Christ. When we look at Abel, we should be thinking of the one whose blood spoke a better word than Abel. When we look at Abraham, we should be thinking about the fulfilment of the promises to Abraham. When we look at David, we should be thinking about the new David. When we look at Solomon, the son of David, we should be thinking of the greater uh, son of David. Hopefully, nearly all those images appear in Hebrews. So <laughs> I don't even need to um, uh, you know, just have a read of Hebrews and you'll see that they're there. And because the Bible is Christocentric, because the Old Testament is talking about Jesus, some people have asked with that, you know, does that make it irrelevant then? Is it that it's not about me? And I'd want to say, actually, no, that's actually what helps it be relevant for us, as we see how it points us to Christ. Because we are in a relationship with Christ. We are in Christ. And Christ is in us. So actually, as we see how it works out, uh, telling us about Christ, that helps us understand more, even better, how it applies to us as well. So I want to say, if you're looking at the Old Testament, it's better to see it through Christ first and then apply it to ourselves. Not that we can't learn things uh, in other ways, but that's the way I think God wants us to see it. And that's why uh, we've been looking at it through Hebrews. Uh, So that was question number two. And then last question from the Blue Slips. Um, I think picking up on what we said last week. How can I tell if I'm a genuine Christian and not drifting? That's a really good question, very personal question. Um, I want to ask the question, are you trusting in Jesus now, uh, alone now? So often people try and say, well, can you point back to a time? And that could be helpful in certain situations. But if you're worried that you're not a Christian, well, if you're trusting in Jesus now, and you're repenting of your sin, then the Bible says that that is what a Christian is. So be encouraged by that. And I want to say, if you're worried about these sorts of things, actually that can be a sign too, that actually there, there is spiritual life in you. So if you think about uh, being caught in a flood, uh, actually, if you're alive, you struggle, don't you? It can feel quite uncomfortable being underwater. If you're dead, there's no struggle. Uh, There's no fight. So if you're struggling, if you're grasping, then that's an encouragement that actually you are alive. And the ultimate answer to the question is that you will persevere. You'll keep going. If you've had a period of drifting away, then you'll come back. And I want to say, I wrote this, you know, talk to someone if you're in that position uh, it's hard to get perspective sometimes in your own life of where you are. So have a chat with a Christian friend that you trust uh, and, and talk to them about it. It's something that we all uh, struggle with at times. So those are three questions from Blue Slip. So please feel free to uh, ask more, especially in the next series as well. And uh, we'll do another Q&A in a few weeks' time. We're going to look at our uh, passage now, so you find it helpful to have it open in front of you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. you go to when you're in trouble? You know what I mean? When uh, it's all gone wrong, the car's broken down, when your kitchen's set on fire, when you're not feeling so great, when you're ill. Now, I don't mean the mechanic uh, or the fireman or the doctor uh, in those situations, but there are generally people in our lives, aren't there, who we turn to when we're in trouble. Often it's our family, sometimes it's our friends. Uh, We have those amazing ones who, who manage to keep their cool when the ceiling's falling down. Sometimes quite literally. But what about in our lives in general? Who do we turn to when our life is going all wrong? 
when our plans don't seem to be working out, when our dreams don't seem to be coming true, when relationships fall apart, when people we love leave us, when our relationship with God seems to be falling apart at the seams. Who's on our speed dial, if you like, when those things happen? Well, the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were facing those same questions. They'd had it tough. They'd had property taken. Some of them had been thrown in prison. And this whole becoming a Christian thing wasn't really turning out the way that they might have expected it. Some of them are tempted to throw in the towel, give in. Uh, Not into nothing, but perhaps into what they used to be into. Maybe they'd have Jesus, but maybe less prominent in what they think. Maybe that would take some of the heat off their situation. So outwardly, their lives were falling apart in lots of ways. And inwardly, it seems as though they were drifting away from God. Who could they turn to who could understand? Who could they run to who wouldn't throw it back in their faces? Well, the author of Hebrews has spent a chapter explaining a bit about the awesome godness of Christ. He's shown us the divinity of Christ, uh, the way that he is God. But here in this chapter now, he's going to show us a bit of Christ's humanity. And he's not going to do that to engage in some sort of theological debate. Again, there's no reason to think that these believers doubted the humanity of Christ. He's telling them this so that they can know who to turn to in their desperate needs, in the crisis that they're having in their lives. And the first thing he tells us is that Jesus is the glorious man on the throne. Jesus is the glorious man on the throne. I'm going to look at verses 1 to 9, so I'll read them to us again. Verses 1 to 9. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering, uh, sorry, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So that was verses 5 to 9. But God's purposes here we see are centred not around man, sorry, not around angels, but around man. Get that the right way around. The world to come that he talks about in verse uh, six, uh, oh, sorry, verse five. There uh, is uh, the world that is coming in, in, in the, the age that is to come. Um, if you remember, going back to the, the first chapter in one verse six, uh, it talks about, and again, when the, he brings the firstborn into the world. So he's saying he's speaking about the world to come, which we're talking about. The only world we've been talking about is that one in verse 6 of chapter 1. Okay? So I've got a bit muddled there. Um, so when he's saying we've already talked about this, this is what he's talking about. Now if you remember, when we looked at chapter 1 verse 6, we talked about it, uh, not Jesus becoming a man entering into this world, but in his exalted state, entering his homeland, entering into heaven, entering into glory. And that fits then with the world that is to come. It's talking about glory. It's talking about heaven, if you like, the new creation. He's talking about the future. And what he's saying is that the future, the age to come, the world to come, doesn't belong to angels. Shockingly, it actually belongs to man. That's what the point he's making in verses 6 to 8. We've got a quote there from Psalm 8. And 
Psalm 8 really is harking back to Eden. Think about it, the language that's used, being given glory and honour, being given dominion over the beasts, over the animals. It's going back to Genesis, isn't it? Right back at the beginning. It's talking about mankind in his original state. Now his point is that though we don't live in Eden anymore, um, this world actually still belongs to man and the world, become, the world to come belongs to man. But in this world, we don't see everything in subjection to human beings. We don't see everything under our control. I mean, think about it. We're daily at the mercy of the elements, aren't we? You see people on the news that are uh, attacked by animals that we're supposed to rule over. People mauled by dogs. Zoo animals attacking people. And that's just in this country, where we only have those sort of animals in zoos. Think about it in the terms of the globe. I mean, the worst thing we have here, really, the most poisonous thing we have is daddy long legs, uh, really, in our country. And yet still, we're not ruling over them. They come into our houses. We can't control them. We're not in control of our world. That's what he's saying in this world that we're in. We're not even in control of ourselves. Who hasn't been in that situation where something escapes your mouth before you've thought about it? Who hasn't tried to give something up only to find that their willpower was too weak? Who hasn't tried to change something in their life only to find that they're powerless to do so? We're not as we're supposed to be. We're not in control as God first intended. We do not see that in our world. But what do we see? Well, God's plans are centred around one human being. Have a look again at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels... Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He is the one that's made it a little, uh, for a little while lower than the angels, but now he's crowned with glory and honour. It's talking about Jesus, and actually, even though we've been talking about Jesus for the whole book so far, this is the first mention of his name. He's only been referred to as the Son before this point. And that mention of his name, his earthly name, emphasises his humanity. God the Son became Jesus. He's eternally Jesus, now the God-man. Up until this point, it's been emphasising his deity, his godness. But now it's emphasising the manhood of Jesus. Because even his manhood made him superior to the angels. Even that put him above the angels. Here we see him taking, if you like, a temporary demotion for a little while to get a massive promotion as a man. Not as the son, because actually as the son of God, he was already above the angels, wasn't he? We've had enough evidence of that. But now here there's a man that's been exalted, a man that's been promoted. There is now a man on the throne of heaven, crowned with glory and honour, as intended, right back in Eden. And the way that he's got there, the way that he's ascended to the throne as a man is by virtue of his death. Do you see that in the second half? Crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death. So think about it for a second. By becoming man, the son has rescued his people from death by dying. His death in our place has made him superior to the angels because it's bought for him a people. Angels couldn't die for our sins. Angels, as far as we know, can't die. But Jesus, the God-man, did die. 
And the only way that God could die is by taking on flesh, by becoming a man. So we see now that his death has made him superior to the angels, but he could only die as a man. So Jesus is the ultimate man, if you like, in this passage. He fulfills that creation mandate from Eden to rule over all things. He's now crowned with glory and honour. And his death undoes what Adam and Eve did in Eden. Through his death, he overthrows the curse of death. So whilst we don't see mankind ruling the world as God intended, that's the point of uh, verses, uh, verse 8, we do see Jesus, the God-man, fulfilling that. And we can look forward to reigning with him in the age to come, which belongs to man, not the angels. We will join in him filling uh, fulfilling this. That's what we sang earlier, wasn't it? We will reign with him in the new creation. Well, even though he's the glorious king, even though he's uh, the glorious man on the throne, where does that leave us in all this? Uh, I mean, if Jesus is so glorious, if he's the ultimate man, why would he hang around with us? Well, our second point is that Jesus is not ashamed of us, his family. Jesus is not ashamed of us, his family. Verses uh, 10 to 13, I'll read them to you again. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Do you ever find yourself embarrassed by your family? Don't answer that out loud. Uh, I remember years ago going to the Granada Studios with my grandma Ivy. And we went on the film ride. I don't know if you've ever been to Granada Studios. It's probably changed now. It's a lot of years ago. And uh, there's a, a scene with uh, an alien at the end where it squirts water on you. And uh, my grandma wasn't really expecting it. And it's just me and my grandma in the carriage sort of going around this thing. And this thing sprays water on her and she starts saying, it's wean on me, it's wean on me. <laughs> and there's all the other people in the carriage sort of not knowing where to look and there's me sort of thinking, I'm, I'm not with her, I'm not with her, you know, just walk around, just one of those people sat with her in the carriage. But families can embarrass us, uh, can't they? Uh, they can uh, be embarrassing. But Jesus is not embarrassed of us. This section talks of us as being sons and brothers. Uh, sons of God the Father and therefore brothers of Jesus. Now stop and think about that for a second. We talk a lot about the fatherhood of God, don't we? But what about the brotherhood of Christ? That's quite a big thing, isn't it? Jesus addresses us, flesh and blood, dust, as brothers. The very race who nailed him to the cross, he calls his brothers. And more than that, he actually brings his brothers to glory. He's involved in bringing them there. Do you see that in verse 10? For it's fitting that he, that's God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So it's God the Father bringing the sons to glory, but he does it through the Son. And it's many sons. Now think about it again. We spent three sessions looking at Jesus, the great exalted Son. And now God addresses us 
as sons as well. doesn't address the angels as sons. We've been thinking about that for three sessions, haven't we? But he addresses us, believers, as sons. So we're actually in a better position than even the angels are. So there are many sons, and he brings us to glory. Now think about what we've just been reading. He is the one crowned with glory and honour as intended. And now he brings us into that glory. This brings us back to Eden through his death. And in doing so, God makes Jesus perfect in the process. Now don't get the wrong idea here. It's not that Jesus wasn't already perfect. The idea here is completeness. Uh, So it's a bit like um, the perfect pork pie. Thinking of perfect pork pie. Now it might be, for the Otley side of people, it might be Weedman's. Uh, For the Oakley side of people, it might be Lishman's. Uh, You can decide that afterwards for yourselves. But think of the perfect pork pie. And then for me, personally, think about adding brown sauce. Mm. Now, that really is the perfect pork pie. Okay. Now, it's not that it was imperfect before, but it's now complete. It's together with the brown sauce. There's something added to it that makes it even more perfect, if you like. And Jesus' death here is the reason for Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. It's the thing that makes him complete. He's taken on manhood. He's added something and fulfilled all that man should be. And it means that a man now sits on the throne of heaven and he's there to help his brothers. Now we are his brothers. That's what it's talking about uh, in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. Therefore, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Really what that's saying is that we have one father. Uh, in some of the old translations, that word is translated uh, father. It's literally all of one. But what is in mind here is God the father that he's just been talking about. Our father is God. Jesus' father is God. The one who makes us holy. Jesus is God's son. Uh, he's the one who makes us holy. And the one who are being made holy, well, we are God's sons, aren't we? Just as an aside, that's a wonderful definition of a Christian, isn't it? One who's being made holy. One whom Jesus is making holy. All of us are works in progress, and he wants the Hebrews to know that too. Jesus is working to make us holy. That's what it means by sanctifying us. To make us like himself. And because we all have one father, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed of his family, us. And now then we have three Old Testament quotes that the author gives us to back up uh, this unashamed brotherliness. Now the first one is Psalm 22. I'm going to need you to turn this one up. It's on page 260 of the small print Bibles and page 505 of the large print ones. Psalm 22. I want us to see these in context. So the the verse that he quotes in our passage uh, is in Psalm 22, verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now, this is speaking of David. This is from Psalm 22. It's a psalm of David. It tells you at the top. How can he just make it be that Jesus is saying this? Does that not seem to you like he's ripping it a bit out of context? Well, actually, no. 
Because this psalm is more familiar than you think. You might not know that verse of it. Uh, but look a bit further up. Look at uh, verse 1, for example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, or uh, further down, uh, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He, he trusts in the Lord. Let them deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Do you see, these are actually the verses that Jesus uh, himself says at the crucifixion. And that the Gospels actually pick up to be about Jesus at the crucifixion as well. This is, we're actually really familiar with this being about Jesus and Jesus saying these words. We're just not used to reading to the end of the psalm. And on top of that, it's about David, isn't it? Uh, if you remember from our previous weeks, that David is the anointed of the Old Testament. He's literally the Christ. That's how we translate that word, uh, or we have that word in, in the New Testament. So he's just using this and saying, actually, this is about Jesus. This is him speaking, if you like. He's putting the words in his mouth. And we're quite happy with that, with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're just not used to that for the rest of the psalm. And then the other quotes that we have, they're from Isaiah chapter 8. That's on page uh, 331 of the small print ones and 637 of the larger ones. So Isaiah chapter 8. And then verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And that word hope can be translated uh, trust as well. That's what we've got uh, in the book of Hebrews. And it is likely that it's this because of verse 18. Because verse 18 is, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. So they're right next to each other. So it makes sense that he's, he's using these two quotes together. Now, here again, we have Isaiah speaking. But here, the author is identifying it again as though Jesus is the one who trusts in God and hopes in God. We know, don't we, that he does in his earthly ministry, he prayed. He trusted in God. He entrusted himself to God the Father as a man. Again, the emphasis is on his humanity. He's saying, as a man, he trusted in God, like us. He's our brother because, like us, he is involved in hoping and trusting in God. And then verse 18, Behold, I am the children whom the Lord has given me. That's Isaiah speaking again. Now in the context of the Isaiah passage, God had given him children with names of judgment and warning in their names. But here again, the author has Jesus speaking these words. Now it's not talking about Jesus' own children, but the ones that God the Father had given him, if you like. In other words, his brothers, the ones that God had given him. And this again backs up the brotherliness idea. But is he just taking random quotations again? Well, no. Read the context. Let me read it to you uh, from verse 11. For the Lord spoke to me thus, uh, thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And I will become a sanctuary and a stone of offence, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching of my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from me, uh, from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. 
Do you see there, actually, this is the passage that talks about Jesus being the stone at the rock of offence, which if you've uh, been hearing Steve in 1 Peter, um, that's a really big idea in the Bible. It's one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament to talk about Jesus being the rock of offence. And if you're not convinced as well that this is really about Jesus, just go down to verse 22 and read on into chapter 9. Remember, the chapters are um, have been put in later. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there shall be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former days he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in these latter, in latter time he will be made glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I don't think I need to carry on because you will hear it at Christmas time. Um, but actually, this whole section of Isaiah is about Jesus. Uh, actually, all of this is talking about him. So it's not a stretch that if the bits at the either side are talking about Jesus, that the bit in the middle is talking about Jesus as well. But it must be said, these aren't the places we'd automatically go for to talk about Jesus, are they? They're not the places that we would go to. But again, it's just a clue, isn't it, that the whole Old Testament is actually about him. Uh, as we were mentioning in the questions and answers, that actually we must read it all Christocentrically. Uh, with Christ at the centre, because that's what the author here is doing. He's taking these words that we wouldn't automatically go for, but he's saying, actually, they're about Jesus too. So, the whole Old Testament, it backs up his divinity, that's what we saw in chapter 1, but it also backs up Christ's humanity. It testifies that we are his family, his brothers and sisters, and that he's not ashamed of us. And that's such a relief, isn't it, that Jesus is not ashamed of us, his family. It can be so easy to fall into thinking that Jesus is ashamed of us. It can be so easy to think that Jesus must despair of me in my sin. But he doesn't. We are God's sons. He is God's son. As kooky as we are, as wayward as we are, we are still his brothers. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers because God is not ashamed to call us sons. And we need to grasp this as believers, that God is for us. When things are hard, he's disciplining us as sons, Hebrews tells us. So God is not embarrassed of us. He delights in us because of Jesus. And on top of that, then, we need to think about our relationship with each other, don't we? We should not be embarrassed of each other. It's easy to badmouth other Christians, especially if there are other churches or not around. But if Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers then neither should we be. Now, I'm not talking about everyone who walks into a church building. I'm not talking about every building that calls itself a church. But where there are genuine believers, we should be kind and loving as a brother or a sister. And the same is true within our congregation as well. Are you embarrassed by the person sitting next to you? When that friend says to you, you're different from all those weirdos who go along to that church, aren't you? What's your answer? If Jesus is not ashamed to call them brother or sister, then neither should you, neither should I. Jesus is our brother. He is not ashamed of us. We are his family. But there's one more thing uh, that the author wants us to see about Jesus this morning. And that is that Jesus is our devil-disarming deliverer. Here really in this section, uh, it gives us three reasons why Jesus became a man and took on flesh and blood. And uh, we'll uh, read them 14 to 18. You need to go back to Hebrews like I do. 
14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those uh, through uh, who sorry deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So like I say, it gives us three reasons why uh, Jesus took on uh, flesh and blood. The first one is that Jesus became a man to disarm the devil. The word destroy there is a bit strong, uh, really. It means disarm, render powerless. The devil hasn't been destroyed yet, but he has been disarmed. What was his weapon of choice? His weapon of choice here was the fear of death. The devil uh, is using the fear of death to hold people in slavery. Now, the devil is not the one who ends your days. Uh, Actually, God is the one who is in control of our lives, isn't he, every breath? But he is the one who handed us over to death, wasn't he, back in the garden. He's the one who lords it over us. He's the one who makes us fear it. Now, there are two ways to fear death, aren't there? There are a helpful way and an unhelpful way. Uh, It could be helpful if we've been thinking on Sunday evenings, haven't we, about knowing that our time is coming, uh, that at some point we will die. And that actually makes us think through what our life is all about and turn to God. But here the fear that's in mind is in a paralysing way. So it's a bit like a rabbit in a headlights. You know, have you seen that that situation in the car where instead of, it sees the car, it sees the danger, but instead of running it just freezes. This is the sort of fear that devil, the devil provokes in us. Fear that makes us freeze and not think about things. Fear that makes us put uh, death out of our minds. Fear that, that makes us fool ourselves that we'll live forever, even if we don't say that out loud. Fear that distracts us or makes us distract ourselves away from it with entertainment, avoiding anything that will remind us of our mortality because it's terrifying. We've seen on Sunday evenings that without God, it is terrifying. It's that unknown thing that's coming. But it comes to us all. But none of us in ourselves know what happens when it comes. And that's terrifying. In a 90s film that I saw a few years ago, there's an unusually candid moment where the man doing a eulogy at a funeral says this. Is that moments like these, my dear friends, that we must ask ourselves, how can this not be part of some larger plan? Do good men like Thompson just blink out one day like a bad bulb? I mean, one minute you're with a knockout girl or guy, and the next you're in the compost heap. Doesn't that bother any of you? Because it scares the living daylights out of me. Now, we'd never say that, would we, at a funeral or or anywhere, really. But we might think it. It's terrifying. But, Jesus frees us from the fear of death. That's what he's telling us here in this passage. He has conquered death. He has beaten it for his people. He has shot the devil's fiery arrows right from his hand. He's disarmed the devil. And that brings us to the second reason that he became a man. Jesus became a man to be our deliverer. Look again at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death 
was subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, by defeating death, has freed us from the fear of death. Death has no sting for the Christian. All the way through the New Testament, death is referred to as sleep for Christians. Uh, on the back of your sheets, you'll see that there's uh, where Stephen is, is stoned in a cruel and painful death. It says, and they were, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, if the Bible can describe a horrific stoning, death, none of us would like that, would they? Would we? If you can describe that like a nap, then what are we to fear? The ultimate penalty has totally lost its power. Jesus has removed the fear of death because he's conquered hell. No longer must we go there if we're trusting in Jesus. Hell has no claim on us. Death has no hold on us. We will rise as Jesus rose on the last day when he comes with his holy angels. But he doesn't do it for the angels. He does it for people. Have a look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham here refers to all God's people. Uh, Jew and Gentile, put Galatians 3 verse 7 on the back. Uh, for you know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's saying if we trust in Christ, it's another way of referring to God's people as people. So the contrast here is not Jew, non-Jew, if you like. It's angel, human being. Jesus is the helper of mankind, not of angels. And that word help there harks back to the Exodus, as we've seen all the way through this section. Uh, there's all these Exodus imageries. It literally means to take hold of, to grasp. It's a rare verb in the Bible, but it's used again in Hebrews, just one more time. In Hebrews 8, uh, verses 8 and 9, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That word there, took, is the same word. What Jesus does for the offspring of Abraham is what God did for the offspring of Abraham, if you like, in Exodus. He takes hold of them and he rescues them. He takes them out of slavery and brings them into the promised land, his promised rest. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for his people here. A rescue from slavery to the fear of death. Breaking the power of evil that holds us captive. Jesus really did bring about a new exodus for God's people. And he did it by becoming one of us. By associating with God's people, just like Moses did. And he bore the scorn with us. So he, he became a man to become our deliverer. And then lastly, one last reason. Jesus became a man so that he could be our faithful high priest. Look at verse 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now the Bible's clear that actually as believers we're all priests. There's no mere human being, if you like, that stands between us and God. But Jesus is our high priest. And this is a brief introduction to what's coming uh, for most of the rest of the letter. But we see here that he's merciful. There's no mention in the Old Testament of priests ever being merciful. They couldn't offer mercy. 
It wasn't theirs to give. But Jesus can offer mercy because he is the offended party. He can offer forgiveness because all sin is ultimately against him. And here we see that he's willing to. He's merciful. And he's also faithful. Now, a faithful priest was promised in the Old Testament. It was one in opposition to the faithless sons of Eli, who didn't care for, uh, the, the sons of Eli didn't care for the things of God or for the people, but just for themselves. But Jesus is the faithful priest. He cares for the things of God and he cares for his people. So much so that actually he made propitiation uh, for their sins. That's what it tells us in the second part of verse 17. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now there's much debate around that word propitiation. It's not quite the same word that's used elsewhere uh, for the same idea. Propitiation, if you're unfamiliar with that word, is the idea of taking the wrath or anger of someone uh, on yourself. Now Jesus definitely did that. He took the anger of God the Father on himself. He offered himself as a sacrifice instead of us. And that definitely does seem to be the idea here, doesn't it? The idea of offering himself as a sacrifice. And that will be developed later in the letter. So he's not only been our priest, if you like, our high priest, but he's been our sacrifice. He suffered and died on the cross in our place. And he suffered as a man. Uh, His death was uh, suffering. Those are the run-up to his death, the persecution, the taunts. Think of Gethsemane. Shedding drops of blood in agony for what was before him. Facing the temptation to turn away from the cross. So he suffered as a man. He was tempted as a man. Faced with this, he must have been tempting to give in. His own people, if you remember at the cross, were against him. His own disciples abandoned him. His father forsook him on the cross. All of it could stop in a twinkling of an eye. All of it could just go away if he willed it. Twelve legions of angels could have come and taken him off the cross. But even in that temptation, Jesus didn't give in. He endured the cross and he didn't sink back. Let's shrink back. And that means that he can help us. Do you see that there at the end? He's able to help those who are being tempted. The word help here is different from that word meaning to grasp or to grab. It's usually the supports under a ship that sort of keep the ship upright. It's what the blind and the lame cry to Jesus for as he walks along. It's the idea of support, of aid. We all know it's different, don't we, helping people when we've been through the same thing. There's a sympathy and an empathy that's just impossible when you haven't gone through it. I remember a few years ago, Caroline and I were expecting twins. And um, we lost them, we had a miscarriage uh, while we were expecting them. And lots of people offered us sympathy and empathy, but it was different with the people who'd been through that themselves. There's an empathy when you've been in that situation as well. And what it's saying here is, by emphasising his humanity through all this chapter, that Jesus has lived our human experience. He was tempted just like we are tempted. But when he was hard, he, he didn't give in. So think about this for the original hearers. He can understand their temptation to go back. He persevered though and he now offers help to those facing the same temptation. He's able to help with all temptation. We'll find that out later in Hebrews. He was tempted in every way. But here it's more specific. He's been there. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And he's able to plead before God the Father for these people. So for us this morning as well, he understands if we're tempted to draw back. 
He understands when we're tempted to give in. He's been there. But he's able to support us, to help us, to aid us, because he has been there. We have a merciful high priest. He doesn't lord our temptations over us. He doesn't even lord our failures over us. He understands. If we've drifted, he's not going to throw it back in our face. If we're drifting and come back to him, he's not going to turn us away. He is merciful and faithful. We can turn to him in our need. But sometimes he's the last person we want to turn to, isn't he? We feel the shame of our failures. We feel the weight of our guilt. But he is the most merciful and faithful person in the universe. So who must we turn to in our troubles? Jesus. He's the only one that can help us. He will by no means turn us away if we come to him. He understands because he's faced those temptations himself. And unlike an earthly priest who at best can say, I'm the same, pray for me too. He can say, I can help you. I can support you. <coughs> this whole section picks upon words from Isaiah 41. He will strengthen us, help us, uphold us with his righteous right hand. So we must go to our high priests in times of need. We must go for him for strength, for perseverance. We must go to him because he alone can help us in our time of need. So let's do that now as we... Uh, pray and then we'll sing uh, to close. Let's turn to God in prayer. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for our faithful and merciful high priest. And Father, we pray that in life's troubles, in our struggles, in our faith, in our life, Father, pray that you would not be the last person that we go to. Pray that we would turn to your son, uh, Father, and receive mercy uh, and receive help in our time of need. Father, help us to see that the humanity of Christ means that he can call us his brothers and help us to remember the amazing privilege that that is. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.